afternoon and welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with the late Patty Fink who came screeching in just as the song uh, came on the air. Uh, Laurent has today off because his little girl is going away for a week. It's the first time he'll be separated from her for a full week. This is, this is like daddyhood on te- the, the biggest daddy test. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So uh, he'll be back with us next week. Our guest today is Damon Pelliccioni. Uh, he is the CEO of the LGBT streaming service Reverie. Damien, are you there with us? I am. I'm here. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. Yeah, uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, we were talking earlier in the week, and I was just thinking... This would be fun to have on uh, Lambda Weekly. And uh, so Damien said to me, okay, so how are we going to hook up? Will it be on uh, Google Meetings? Will it be on... (laughs) Is this your first time on radio? It's actually, you know, it's funny. It's not my first time on radio. Uh, I've been on radio in Canada. I've been on radio in New York City. I've been on radio in a few different different towns. But it's really funny, though. And, you know, when I ask you that question... It says, you know, we live in such this Zoom, modern-day, Google Meet, Microsoft Teams-like world. I just assume that, like, all of radio now is digital. So it's actually kind of fun that I'm using my phone and calling in and, you know, dialing in over analog like the old days. Yeah, we we have (laughs) dials. We have needles that I have to watch. Uh, Our um, messages, our spot announcements are streamed off a computer. But that's about it. (laughs) I think, look, hey, anything that is, you know, there, there's definitely something to be said about, I call it the OG days of, or, you know, the good old days of, um, you know, analog. And I, I, I'm 41 years old, so I was born in 1981. So I always say I'm what they, what they call a zennial. I'm half Gen X, I'm half millennial. So I was born in analog, and I had to learn digital. Wow. Well then, maybe you'll you'll appreciate that we had we have our our PSAs on a computer, but prior to that, we had a four track, or was it a one track? Well, we got rid of it when the eight track player went down to two tracks. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, and now they're off the computer. That wasn't all that long ago. Do you know? I was thinking just before the show another comparison when we went on the air in 1983. We were the LGBT radio show. That was it. If you wanted LGBT TV, that was at least a decade off. Uh, if you wanted to stream anything else, well, you wouldn't stream, but uh, if you wanted to hear anything else, you had to go to L.A. or New York to hear another LGBT show. Uh, and, on- in fact, we had listeners who, um, I remember this this anecdote very well. A Baylor student who wanted to listen to our show would drive from Waco to Hillsboro, which was where you could get the signal from the radio, and sit at a rest area for two hours listening to the show and then drive back to Waco. So do you have to drive to Hillsboro from Waco to pick up Revry? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> No, no, now, I mean, you no, know, it's so funny. Uh, you know, it's so funny, you mentioned Hillsboro. I was literally just got back from Portland, Oregon, and one of the folks I was having dinner with was from Hillsboro, Oregon, which is like a suburb of Portland. So it's ironic to hear that name twice right now in the last 24 hours. But look, no, Reverie, Reverie is available globally on any device, literally. You, your Apple TV, your Roku, 
your Amazon Fire. You can go to the website, watch.reverie.tv. Um, you can download it on your mobile device, your uh, you know iPhone, your Android. We've been downloaded in over 140 countries, which blows my mind. Mm-hmm. The majority of our content is in English. We do have a big category of international content as well, with the biggest being content from Brazil and Portuguese and content that is in Spanish, Latin American Spanish. But, um, you know, we have had people now watch and, um, and, and, and tune in from all parts of the globe. And, and how I know this, outside of obviously the data and the physics that we get, um, you know, through our dashboard, is that um, we've had messages from queer kids from so many different countries and then even other, like, just states and red states like the one that you're in right now, um, that, um, hey, so no picking on Texas. We're trying. We're trying. No, I know. And I wanna, we'll talk about, we'll, we'll talk, I do want to get into politics later, but not this early in the conversation. Right. But, um, but look, but look, kids from, point, my point, my point in my, my conversation is that, you know, kids from all over the world and all over our own country, our own backyard, are finally getting the opportunity to really see themselves reflected through the content that you can find on Reverie that we're distributing, um, you know, whether you're a trans kid who really wants to see a really successful trans music artist like Neela Jam, or whether you, you know, really love an, another gay movie, which we're going to be coming out with, um, you know, it's a cult classic. It's actually, we call it Queer Classics. That's the show. That's going to come out end of June. It's going to come know, out? So much great content. <laughs> Oh yes, and Reverie is free. Reverie oh, it's gonna free, it's gonna come out. Free, free. Oh, I yeah. get it. I get it. So yeah. No pun intended. <laughs> no pun intended. It's gonna come out on Reverie, but uh, but yes, yeah, that, that's a good one. I missed that. I'm like yeah. that guy that's always like ten steps behind. Five minutes later, I'm like, ah, oh, now I get the joke. <laughs> It's okay. <laughs> so comedy is not a big uh, category on Reverie then. <laughs> it's huge. I just got good at it. Don't ask me to do stand-up. You know, when, in, a, in a previous life, uh, I was an actor, and, uh, and I say this in a previous life like 20 years ago when I was in my early 20s. I thought that's what I was meant to be. It wasn't. And I tried stand-up comedy. And my husband at the time, we had just started dating, and I made him go to one of my stand-up shows. Man, and he brought some friends, and he's like, "You're never going to do that again. <laughs> you are. You're more of a host. You're not a funny person." And I'm all like, "Yeah, I just think I'm funny. It's probably when I'm down." <laughs> um, you have on your uh, site five thousand titles. Yeah. Which again, yeah. I mean, when you compare. When we went on the air, literally for the first at least 10 years, if you wanted to listen to gay and lesbian, you had to listen to us. That was it. There was no choice. There was no option. There weren't gay movies that were uh, being made in theaters. There were a couple. Yeah, yeah. Real bad ones. That was the cringe era for me. Uh, it was like, oh, that's that's not really the portrayal we're looking for. But I guess visibility at any cost, or all visibility is good. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, yeah, look, there's, I, I, I will see, you know, and, and I have to give it to, you know, I'm not familiar, I'm not sure if the folks are familiar listening, but Wolf Video. Wolf Video was mm-hmm. the first LGBTQ 
um, film distributor. Kathy Wolf is like a super pioneer in, in this world. Um, she's an icon for me. Um, and she started off by, you know, licensing LGBTQ titles from LGBTQ film festivals. You know, for context, Frameline in San Francisco is the oldest. It's been around for over 40 years now. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it was such a small, indie kind of art house world back then. And she saw value in printing those on VHS, creating a mailer catalog, which, you know, would come in a, you know, blank sleeve. So, you know, for fear of discretion, the folks who may be buying these films didn't have to necessarily be so public with their, with their mailman, and then would print these VHS and send them off um, in the mail, like old school. Um, and, you know, she was one of the first to ever really start to bring LGBTQ cinema to the masses uh, via, you know, mail and purchase. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure in some parts of the country it would have been considered illegal because... It, oh, like yeah, uh, because it would be considered homosexual conduct, right? Yeah. Right, which yeah. was yeah. illegal in certain states, Texas. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and let's hope that let's hope that we don't go back there. You know, not oh. to get too into politics or like Roe v. Wade, but like everything that's going on right now in the uproar with the Supreme Court and the politics. You know, we really have to start fighting again. We have to start. We have to stand by our female counterparts, um, you know, right now with everything that's going on in the Supreme Court. And it's more important now more than ever during this midterm election to be able to vote and yes. have your, you know, your ballot, your, your ballot matters. Every single ballot matters in everyone in every state from federal to municipal to statewide elections um, to city elections. You know, this is, this is the most, this is going to be a crucial year hopefully, for our movement and for social change and social justice. And uh, good point, good place to interject that Tuesday is our runoff election here in Texas. Yeah, a primary runoff. Yes. The pri primary runoff. And uh, there are a couple of races in there that, boy, is it important to vote and that the right candidate wins. We have a couple of candidates that are... <laughs> Cringeworthy, might you say? Cringeworthy, uh, yes. On the Democratic side, on the Republican side, it's like, okay. Uh, <laughs> a sweep of this one, This one's horrible, but that one's horribler. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, you know, I, I'll give my plug right now, just because we're on this topic, but I am the biggest Beto O'Rourke fan. Uh, we're actually helping to, uh, you know, get him on our network, hopefully go fundraiser with him here in Los Angeles. Beto, has, you know, I've had the chance to meet him when I was at South by Southwest this past year. I've tracked his career since he ran for, you know, president and made his bid there. I think, you know, there is some real positive change. He is a major leader. He has a real strong voice, a real clear opinion. And, um, you know, I personally support him. And I'd love to see history made and Texas have a Democratic governor for the first time in, I don't know... 30 years. Since Ann Richards. Since Ann Richards. Yeah. yeah. Since Ann Richards. And one thing we can't endorse on this show, I'm trying to get Beto on, and of course I will offer our current governor to come on as well. I can't even say that with a straight face, but yeah. I, I will offer. Um, my impression of Beto has always been, every time I've met him, he's just a 
down-to-earth guy. I mean, every time I've talked to him, it's just been a nice conversation. Nothing odd, nothing forced, nothing nothing even overly political. Just you he's can very, talk to He's very present. He's very yeah. real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. He's extremely present. He's exactly the same person that you see on television. Mm-hmm. He, has, he, he is, you know, I, I believe that he is a full good. He's good. They're probably, you know, I've never lived in Texas. I can't speak from that um, perspective, but I'm going to probably take a, go on a limb here and say it's something that Texas, you know, would drastically need right now. Yeah. Well, yeah. And of course, that's not an endorsement. <laughs> of course. Of course. I know this is, but I can endorse him. I know you guys can't, but right. I am a full, I'm fully. You know, as the CEO of the world's largest LGBTQ streaming network, you heard it here first. I am in full endorsement <laughs> of Beto O'Rourke. So, um, how much of the uh, of the streaming service is political? Do you think? You know, it's interesting. We we actually have had um, Joe Biden on our network. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, we, we have our own award show. It's called the Queer X Awards. It's kind of like our version of the MTV Award. Um, and it's always on National Coming Out Day, which is October, October 11th. Yep. You know, very important day for our community. Um, and, and it's during LGBTQ History Month, which is in October. Um, a lot of folks don't realize that that is, you know, another big flagship moment for our community. Um, and in 2020... We, um, you know, we invite a lot of celebrities and a lot of, you know, influencers and guests to be part of um, the award show. And we honor different folks who are very visible within the community. And, um, you know, I I was luckily we luckily were enough to get connected to the Out for Biden campaign, which was the LGBTQ kind of section of his campaign. Uh, Reggie was heading that um, really wonderful, wonderful human being is now working on the Biden administration. And we asked them for a, um, you know, if there was any way we could get a video from, this is during the pandemic, so nothing was in person. It was all pre-recorded or videos that were sent in. We asked if we could get a video from, um, you know, Vice President, now President uh, Biden at the time. And um, we found out like four days before we were going to air that they were sending the video. And of course, at that point, we're like, all hands on deck. We're, you know, we're going to slap, we're slapping this video in the form, you know, in the show. Mm-hmm. has to happen. I even personally pre-recorded myself to give the introduction because this was not scripted. It was definitely not planned. Um, you can watch it on, under our original tab, Queer Act 2020. Um, you would look for it. And you'll see Joe's uh, face, actually, even in the thumbnail. Um, alongside Jennifer Lopez, who ironically enough also sent us a video. Now, Joe Biden sent us a video, and he sent the video to kind of address what he would do if elected, um, you know, if elected and became our president. Um, And it was a four and a half minute, almost five minute address, professionally shot, beautiful. Uh, And we, we got this video and we were like, oh my God, this is insane. This is intense. This is, I mean, he's, hopefully going to be our next president three weeks later of course our dreams came true but um um i i i I took the moment to introduce him as ceo of the network because it was such a special opportunity for myself you know my mother was a politician originally from canada 
So that's kind of where I get um, mm. you know, my very vocal political uh, background. My father was a serial entrepreneur. So those two things combined, you know, it kind of describes my personality a lot. But um, And I you're very polite. I to introduce them. <laughs> and I, I, pardon? I said, and you're very polite. Oh, bless your heart. Uh, as a I'm Canadian... As a Canadian, I think you're forced to be, though. We are. We are bred that way. We are totally bred that way. Um, and so, um, it, and you know, it meant a lot for me in that moment to um, to introduce, you know, our now sitting president, who I actually did have a chance to meet two years earlier, or a year earlier. I met him when he was on a campaign trail at a fundraiser here in Los Angeles and had an opportunity to even shake his hand and get a photo. But um, it, it meant a lot to me because, you know, I'm Canadian, born and raised, um, and I only became a full-fledged citizen of the United States in August of 2018 was actually when I was sworn in. And I went through the exact same process that every other immigrant does um, coming to the United States. Um, and, and even the swearing ceremony was very... Uh, very spiritual in a sense for me because there's like a you know in Los Angeles where I was sworn in there was about 1,500 other people besides me in that ceremony along with all of their families. So it was a large gathering at the convention center, um, and this was my first time voting ever in a federal election. It was my first time voting period in the United States, and you know coming from a political family and having lived in the United States for 20 years and giving up my rights to vote in Canada because obviously I, I was in the process. It took, it took about um, 17 years um, to do my, you know, from the time that I was a student to the time I became a citizen. Wow. Um, so in that 17 year period, I was not able to vote in Canada and I was not able to vote in the United States. So this was very meaningful for me. Mm. Um, and it was meaningful for me to have the opportunity to introduce, you know, sitting vice, two term sitting vice president and now president of the United States um, on a network that I that I started with my three other co-founders, so it was it was definitely um, something that uh, you know I'll always forget, and it's obviously on our network for everyone to watch. We're talking to D uh, Damian Pelliccioni. He is the CEO uh, of the LGBT streaming service Reverie. We need to take a break. Damian, stick with us. We'll be back with more Lambda Absolutely. Weekly right after this. This is Alex Hanselka, and you're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON FM, Dallas. And this is Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet. I'm here in the studio with the late Patty Fink. And our guest is Damian Pelliccioni. He is the CEO of the LGBT streaming service Reverie. Uh, Damian, where did you get the idea to do a streaming service? Yeah, you know, it's... it's um, I, I, look, I, I, it's ironic because I've always worked in entertainment. Like I was mentioning before, I used to be an actor back in the day. Um, got into producing... And then from producing content, and I was producing content for the web specifically, you know, back in 2006, 2007, which for context, you know, YouTube had only launched in 2006. So I really wanted to focus on online content because it was a great, it was a new medium in which to kind of create for. Um, and, um, and streaming was a big part of that. I remember buying the first Apple TV, which I believe came out around 2008, 2009, um, you know, buying a Roku stick, buying an Amazon Fire. Of course, the operating systems weren't like they were today. And obviously, there were not as many apps. Um, I remember even the first three generations of Apple TV, they, it was a closed system, meaning that, like, you would only have apps that Apple would put on. And there was maybe, like, 12, 15 at max. 
Um, and it wasn't until um, 2015 uh, where I really where the idea kind of started. I was actually working for a German startup company in Cologne, based in Los Angeles. I was based in LA, but I was representing them for you know the United States and for Canada. And um, I was waiting in my hotel room in Amsterdam to go to a trade show. And I don't speak Dutch and I don't speak German, so I didn't understand any of the television. And I'm the biggest self-proclaimed Apple file. I love all things Apple. I have to have all the toys. I used to be that nerdy kid that lined up for the new iPhone back in the day when they had those big events lined up for hours. Um, My wife is, I, is one as well. Yeah, she calls herself a, a, a Macintosh bigot. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I identify just like your wife said. And, and, you know, I think when you think about it too, you know, Steve Jobs created a culture around a brand. And, and Apple is a culture, you know, it's a culture of electronics. But, you know, folks like your wife and folks like me who identify as Apple files or Apple biggest, I love that. I'm going to use that one now. Um, <laughs> I think that's great. <laughs> you know, we are very, very loyal to that brand. And so I watch, they do a big keynote um, online kind of broadcast um, in September where they talk about all the new products they're going to come out with for Q4. And so I was in my hotel room, like, oh, my God, I'm going to watch the broadcast. I'm going to watch the Apple broadcast. I'm going to watch Tim Cook, who is my all-time hero, who one day I hope to have lunch with. Um, that's like a dream of mine. Um, and so I watched the broadcast, and I, um, you know, they introduced the new Apple TV fourth generation, and they announced that they were making the software, the operating system, open. So they called it TVOS. Uh, and it was based on iOS, which was you know, how developers would create applications for an iPhone. Um, and so that's when a light bulb went off. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to be big. People are going to create a ton of apps, especially Hollywood. I need to get in on this, right? Like this is the next frontier. And so um, I, you know, it didn't come out until about a month later. I bought it. I installed it on my television at home. And just like when you got your first iPhone back in the day, it had your five basic Apple apps. And the App Store was there. And you'd have to search the App Store to download apps that were interest to you. And so I searched LGBTQ, all the acronyms, and nothing came up, you know, because it was a new operating system. So it was like ding, 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 light bulb went off. I'm like, we're going to create, like, the first queer streaming network, LGBTQ streaming network. And immediately I had my husband of uh, now 15 years, Christopher Rodriguez, who's our chief business officer and one of the co-founders. He was actually the attorney for Shark Tank at the time. Had him, you know, in my living room along with Aaliyah J. Daniels, our COO, mm -hmm. uh, who also was an attorney who ironically enough went to law school with Chris. And for years I'd been telling them, y'all should be working together. But you know, I'd be the one that would put that all together. And then LaShawn McGee, they are chief product officer and the fourth co-founder of Reverie and um, LaShawn was an editor. She was an AFI American Film Institute graduate. Um, you know, she's a, uh, also were, um, you know, working on big projects with like everyone from like Ava DuVernay and like the amazing race on television. So sh they knew programming and they knew obviously, um, editorial. And so had them in Chris and I's living room. Uh, you know, this is back in 2015, November, 2015. And I pitched this idea and showed them all the devices and explained all the applications. Most of them knew about it already. And I said, let's go do the LGBTQ version of this. 
And immediately everyone was like, we're in, we're all in. We like canceled our Christmas plans. We started like literally meeting, I think like every other day in the living room. I got a whiteboard, took down some photos, you know, photos on the wall. Like that was the first office of our living room. And that's where Reverie was born. I even remember when we first were naming the company, the exercise, I think the marketing exercises we were going on trying to come up with the name for the business. Um, and then, you know, uh, we were off to the races. Uh, we raised a little bit of capital, found a developer in New York. And by the time we got to March 2016, we were what they call in beta, meaning mm -hmm. we were public, but we weren't really marketing because we we're working through the kinks, but we were discoverable. Um, and ironically enough, my partner and I and another friend had just gotten back from going to Sydney, Australia for Mardi Gras, which is, you know, the big pride celebration in March. It was my 35th birthday, something, you know, we wanted to do. And I landed the day of my birthday, March 7th. 2016, my 35th birthday, and that was the day the asphalt went live. And for context, you don't really get to choose that day. <laughs> it's really like up to the app gods, as we say, to decide when your go live date is. Um, and so um, I felt like that was a really, that was a blessing and an omen, you know, in, in a sense. And yes, my name is Damien. So there's a lot of jokes <laughs> to be made on that. Um, I get it all the time. I've had it my whole life. But, um, uh, you know, and it, it, was a, it, was, it was a tremendous time. And then cut to San Francisco Pride, June of 2016. So just a few months later, we were ready to do our consumer launch. And we did it old school. Um, we we self-printed these super ugly pink every T-shirt. Ironically enough, with a QR code on the back, and this is before people were really using QR codes, so I think we're a little bit ahead of our time. The QR code still works on that T-shirt. Ironically enough, I tried it like literally I think about a month ago, and I was moving some clothes around, and uh, and printed these ginormous, obnoxious big flyers, like thousands of them, and we took it to the streets. We went to Dolores Park, and for those you know, for context in San Francisco, that's where everyone goes and parties in the park on Saturday before the parade on Sunday. And then at the parade, we were handing out flyers, marching the parade. We handed out I think five thousand flyers that weekend and demoed the app ourselves. And I, when we were in the park, and this is a really fun little ending to the story is, you know, folks were like, oh my God, what street marketing team do you work for? Like, what agency are you with? I'm like, no, no, I'm the CEO. That's the COO in the other corner. And that's the CBO in that other corner. And people were like floored that we were so, you know, we, we were doing it ourselves. Like this is very grassroots how this company began. And, um, and, and they started, a few folks took photos with us um, you know, and it was it was a really great moment. By the end of that weekend, a friend of a friend of a friend introduced us to a journalist from Macworld, and that journalist from Macworld did an interview, which came out about a month later, and it's still discoverable on Macworld. And when that article came out end of July, we exploded, and almost ten thousand people downloaded us in over at that point fifty countries. Hmm. Um, almost overnight, we we became a thing. Wow! And, and if you really wanted to stay low tech. Radio. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So well, here you are. Podcasting, and here I am. Look, I appreciate, I appreciate radio. I, radio has, my mom still listens to the radio. She's probably, she's probably trying to figure out a way to listen to this right now. Well, see, you put it, you put us on Reverie, then she can listen. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I have to share a little, a little, um, Apple anecdote. I I saw the other day on a car in Dallas, 
um, on the back window when I was in traffic, it had two large apple um, decals with three small apple decals. So <laughs> I think I was a whole family of you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I, I still, I, those stickers that come with every product, I definitely use them somewhere. <laughs> you know, and actually that has a, that has a gay connection, did you know? The, the Apple no. insignia? Oh, my gosh, I don't know. Um, I don't know that connection. Well, um, Alan Turing, who um, basically cracked the code of the Enigma during World War II and was the subject of, yeah. of I can't remember the name, um, uh, the imitation I, game. I think, was that was that what it called? No, uh, uh, yeah. some... Pardon me? Does yeah, he said that is the name of it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, well, he was when he was gay, and um, you know this sort of um, world class brain. Um, I mean, he he was considered the father of the modern computer because uh, he designed it. Um, he was gay, and at a time in Britain when he was actually a hero, a national hero, um, having you know served so well during the war and helped uh, you know work for the homeland kind of thing. Um, he was convicted of being gay and was given a choice of having um, chemical castration, basically, or where, or taking female hormones. That's what they treated um, homosexuals of the time. And uh, he didn't want to go to prison, so he just opted for the the female hormones and uh, apparently was quite miserable. And as the story goes, um, injected a, an apple with cyanide and took one bite and they found him on his bed dead. Mm-hmm. And the, the apple was on the nightstand with mm-hmm. one bite missing. And so Apple won't confirm or deny this, but it's uh, allegedly an homage to the father of the, the modern computer. Huh. So there you go. Uh. Uh, and I love Alan Turing, and I love that story, and I'm a huge fan. I mean, he's a pioneer, obviously. He was, he was the first queer person in technology, really, that that was that visible. So mm-hmm. now knowing that, <laughs> you know, I, people always ask me, like, what's your exit strategy? I'm like, in a perfect world, I'd love Apple to buy Reverie. That would be my dream. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And be part of Apple Plus. There you- and be part of Apple Plus, absolutely. Um there are gay streaming channels on Netflix and uh, Amazon and Apple Plus. Why is, first of all, how are they doing? Well, look, I, I'm not, uh, I don't really talk tale of like any of my competitors, but I, we really don't believe that we have competitors. You know, when, you know, you look at any other uh, you know, and there's there's maybe a small handful, like less than five, um, any other streaming networks that are trying to target this community. You'll see a common thread, and the thread is one: their subscription video on demand, meaning that you have to pay a fee, a monthly fee, like Netflix, to be able to watch them. Reverie is free, mm-hmm. free LGBTQ television. We are an ad-supported network, meaning that. We make our money, we monetize with our consumers watching the content, but you have to watch ads every eight minutes. Um, most folks are used to that because they're used to watching television, which has ads in it. Um, and, um, and we're the only one that is free LGBTQ streaming television. So and we are what they call AVOD, Ad Video On Demand, or um, FAST, free ad-supported streaming television. 
But the common thread in the content of, you know, these, I think, smaller handful of competitors is you really only see them targeting either gay men mm -hmm. or only drag queens and drag queen enthusiasts. Where I think where we're trying to differentiate ourselves from what we've done a really great, great job is the content that you find on Reverie, especially when you look at our original content, is truly intersectional. And it is truly about our culture, not about one subsect of our culture. So like I was saying before, you can find lots of positive trans representation, non-binary representation, uh, lesbian representation. We have an entire network called Reverie Her, which is dedicated towards queer female voices. You know, no one else is doing that. No one else is doing that. Um, and a free to consumer environment. And, and then, you know, we have great content that is reflective of, you know, other aspects like doc, you know, some amazing documentaries, um, that you can watch. Like my personal favorite, um, you know, is denial. Denial is about, starts off to be about the energy crisis in New Hampshire of all places and Vermont. And um, turns out that the person that's leading the CEO of like the first big clean energy company comes out as transgender. Um, Bernie Sanders actually appears in that one as well uh, to talk about uh, what was happening in his state. But, um, you know, and then we've got Room to Grow and Room to Grow is about, you know, LGBTQ youth, uh, mainly in the Northwest um, and places like Seattle and Salt Lake City. Um, and Portland, and the idea behind that is you're not just hearing a another coming out story from about seven different LGBTQ children, kids and teenagers and preteens in all different intersectionalities, but you're hearing from the parents and the parents' experience, you know, and I think that is really powerful because we support allies uh, watching our content. We actually can assume that probably almost a quarter to a third of the people who watch Reverie are not LGBTQ people. And I think that is a good thing. I think that's super positive because that means that they're choosing to learn about our community and they're choosing to do that through positive depiction and media. Um, and we get to be that platform that drives that social change. So then folks, can understand what our culture looks like, walks like, talks like, actually is beyond just gay and drag, you know? And, uh, and, and it warms my heart when we get messages from parents, which we do all the time. Or I recently, I was flying to Portland, Oregon on Thursday, and I was sitting next to this lovely lady, and we struck up a conversation over a couple of glasses of wine. Thank you, Alaska Airlines. Uh, they gave it to us for free because they saw we were having such a great conversation. And she was telling me about her nephew who just came out as trans in a red state and how um, her brother and sister-in-law, um, you know, her brother and her sister-in-law were learning to really accept their trans male um, uh, child. And uh, I told her about Reverie and I told him about a couple of our shows like Room to Grow and like Them, which is a great show, just learning about acronyms and pronouns. Um, like really basic terminology for our community. And she was like, the, her mind was blown. Like, she's like, I have to have this. You have to send me the link. Oh my God, I can't wait to show my brother and his wife. Like, this is going to totally help them understand their process. You know, she's the cool aunt who's supporting her nephew 
now nephew. Um, but uh, but it was really it's in those moments where it fulfills all the hard work that we have put into building this platform. Um, you know, the ups and the downs of the startup uh, are, are very, you know, the highs are high and the lows can be low, but um, it's fulfilling because you see the actual opportunity for real positive change um, in these moments. And I think, you know, more, more programming for allies, featuring allies, I think would draw even more in and draw a lot of Absolutely. a lot of uh, queer viewers as well. I think it's really important that people see an accepting family um, and family members, especially if they come from a religious tradition or a family that has been um, either full on rejecting, um, kicking them out of the house, kind of thing. Um, all the way to, you know, marginal. It's going to take them some time to adjust. I think it's really good for them to see, um, you know, good experiences, bad experiences, and understand that where they fit in to all of that and use those as sort of resources to rely on. Maybe it, it will get better. Maybe it, maybe there is someone out there who will accept me and my family. Yeah. My sister comes out. I was just visiting my sister last weekend, and she, we went somewhere, and she introduced us. This is my sister and her wife, Erin. Mm-hmm. And that's coming. She's coming out really to her friends, you know. I mean, it's and um, but she she never missed a beat. She just did it, you know. And uh, I think that's those are kind of ally ally actions that are important to see. You know, one of the things I was going to say before we uh, go to our break was that it's so important to tell those positive stories. Uh, at Dallas Voice, we got some criticism on our coverage of the trans community and that we're not covering the trans community. Well, I mean, we covered every single trans person who was murdered, every single terrible thing that Greg Abbott has done to the trans community, every terrible thing. And they said, well, it's there, but you're covering all the terrible things, and it's not that those things shouldn't be there. I mean, those are news, but we need some good news and good stories and stories of successful uh, trans people. And right. we, we have those, but there have been just so many uh, bad news stories, but those need to be balanced. You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON FM. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with the late Patty Fink, and our guest is Damian Pelliccioni, uh, from the C- uh, who is the CEO of the LGBT streaming service Reverie. We'll be back with more right after this. Hi, this is Candy Markham, and I listen to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. Listen. And this is Lambda Weekly. We're talking to Damien Pelliccioni from the LGBT streaming service Reverie. Um, I'm assuming, Damien, that one of the shows that you're probably not going to show or there's no uh, priority to show it would be Will and Grace. <laughs> you are correct, and I'll give you the. There's two reasons that a, um, uh, we actually, it, you know, the studio owns the rights to that, and now all these studios are really holding back the rights. Like, you know, I'm sure you heard about what happened with the Peacock on. I mean, sorry, with Peacock and Netflix, but The Office. You know, when The Office was on Netflix, the rights expired, and Peacock took them all back because they wanted for themselves, right? So a lot of the network. The studios are holding on to those rights, um, like clutching their pearls there. But the other side of it, though, too, is would we play Will and Grace or have Will and Grace if we had an opportunity to license it from a studio on our network? 
Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Because that is that is a legacy and a cult. It's called classic, right? It's a legacy piece of content that everyone knows and a lot of folks identify with. Um, and it's something that I would have on our, our, our VOD side, maybe not our live channels, but definitely on our VOD channels. Um, and, and folks would watch it because... Again, you. I, I think I watch it at least once a year, just like I watch the Golden Girls on Hulu once a year. Um, and now I'm rewatching Abstab. Oh, there's a classic. It, and it it's very gay, even though it's not gay at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the it's the it's the gayest thing besides the original Queerest Folk. I think that. Uh, came out of Britain 90s TV. Mm-hmm. Right. But Will and Grace, I don't think we were the target audience in the first place. I think it was aimed at a straight audience to show, see, gay people are just like us. Correct. Yeah. And look, even Queer Eye right now on Netflix and the original Queer Eye, you know, who do you think that was for? You're, you're spot on. It was not for LGBTQ people. That was for the allies. That was for the mainstream audience you know, to accept and, and really try to um, get into uh, mainstream television and be highlighted in that way. And another one, too, that we all love and watch is RuPaul's Drag Race. Now, RuPaul's mm-hmm. Drag Race was originally on Logo Television, which was Viacom's LGBTQ network. You know, they were the first. They were literally the first ones to launch LGBTQ TV in a big way. Um, unfortunately, it's not anymore. You know, it's reruns of All in the Family or Will and Grace or um, things that are not even queer anymore. It's just that they're kind of as a loss leader for the net, for the um, for the uh, the network. Um, but they moved they moved RuPaul's Drag Race almost you know uh, seven years ago to um, VH1, and the reason why they did that is because VH1 had a broader audience and a bigger reach, and they started to realize that Drag Race was becoming so mainstream and that the audience far exceeded just LGBTQ people, which I think is a good thing, you know. And now Drag Race, multi-Emmy award-winning, multi-franchisable, you know, billion-dollar franchise basically across the globe is this huge movement now that it is today. And, and again, we would not exist if things like that didn't come before us. So how does having somebody who is from the LGBT community uh, affect programming and the direction of LGBT programming? I would think there would be everything positive about it for the LGBT community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, you know, even just talking about, like, the four co-founders of Reverie, you know, we uh, we are all LGBTQ, except Aliyah. Aliyah, our COO, identifies as an ally. Um, but again, I am very, very much like we talked about in the last break um, in support. We don't exist without allies, right? We have to have mm-hmm. allies be part of our, our movement and our cause. Um, but, you know, I think having having a network that is authentically for and by, um, like Reverie, is massively important. You know, we are not, we're still privately owned, so we're not under the same scrutiny or um, held to the same kind of, uh, KPIs, uh, key performance indicators is like some major networks and studios would have. So it allows us to be more free and flexible with the type of content that we create or we distribute or license. And I think that um, you need to make sure that you have people who are in that programming team and that content creation team who are from the community and not just all one subsect. You can't just have all gay men. You can't just have all, all um, women. It has to be 
a melange of different opinions. And I'll, I'll quote Reed Hoffman, who has an amazing podcast called Masters of Scale, had the COO of Facebook, Cheryl Sandberg, on in an early, early season of his podcast. And Cheryl talks about when she was scaling Facebook and hiring different teams, she purposely went like diversified those units, um, business units, like those teams within Facebook and made sure that they weren't all cis, hetero, white men, that they were um, mixed between age, race, gender, sexual orientation, because every it made that team think differently. It made that team challenge each other's um, backgrounds, upbringings, even um, schooling, right, like they had had previously. And, and that bred innovation faster, you know what I mean? And we take a very similar thesis and approach with our marketing, with our programming, with our entire operations, our mission, our culture at Reverie, that like we like to say that we are other and that we think differently and we challenge ourselves even within our own community um, to really go outside of the box or what has art not do what's already been done. Do you know a number of years ago, the author of the book The Front Runner, Patricia L. Warren, was on our show, and she was in Dallas. I forgot why, but uh, she was promoting something, and she was on our show. But before she was on our show, she was on a talk show on our local NPR station, and during one of the breaks, she said, "Oh, I get it. You pick up where they leave off." <laughs> <laughs> you know, she said, we're, we're having a conversation that that whole show was just an introduction to this one. So right. we assume our audience is at a different place than the mainstream audience is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, like, you need, you know, it's never assume that anything is one way, that there are, you know, I always, I, I'm very much like, I don't believe anything's black, I don't think anything's white, I think there's a lot of gray. And I like the color outside the lines. And I think that's where, um, you know, people take risks. And, you know, one of my favorite people, Brene Brown, talks about, like, being vulnerable. And people who are vulnerable take risks because they are not afraid to fail. Um, and I think one of the biggest things with entrepreneurs and startups is you, you know, and I always talk about this when I'm lecturing in, in colleges, um, you know, fail big, fail fast, fail quick, learn from that, grow from that. And never be afraid to fail again, because if not, you know, you won't get as far as you want to in life. Mm -hmm. um, you identify as non-binary. How, how has that figured into some programming or what you're looking for yeah. in programming from other filmmakers? You know, I think it's a, I, my personal journey of gender expression um, I really came into myself during the pandemic where I, I affirmed, um, you know, my gender identity as non-binary. Um, uh, and I, you know, my belief is that, um, you know, gender is a social construct and we need to challenge those norms of what we believe social constructs to look like. Um, and my experience is vastly different than others in terms of, you know, my gender expression, but gender expression is definitely a spectrum. Um, and I think that, you know, for me, we're making sure that we depict non-binary folks in almost everything or anything that we produce. You know, we don't try to create content that is for one subsection of our community. You know, I 
we tried to, on the original side at least, you know, licensing, we license content that's previously made work. But like when we're looking at things like our House of Pride, our big special that's going to come out again with McDonald's uh, on June 5th, you can watch in prime time, 5 Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Um, you know, our cast is really intersectional between trans, non-binary, lesbian, gay, drag, all the different um, acronyms. Um, and all the things that we try to do is we try to we try to diversify our casting and even the storytelling and the folks who are making it. Um, so then it's more of a community aspect and approach to kind of storytelling where, you know, it is not just one subsect. And I think that's where people are really getting excited because it broadens our audience, it broadens our opportunity, and it broadens the um, perspective on what our community is because you know, we can get, we can all get along. We can all identify. We can all have a drink together at the same queer bar. It doesn't need to be different queer bars. And, um, and that's where we're trying to really succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, how important is it for you to make sure that your audience knows that this character is gay? Or are, is some of your programming just the assumption is there? You know, I, I, I don't think it's it's super important to us to like hit it over the head, you know, in in a very obvious way. Um, I think you can tell by the branding of the network, and when you just go onto the website or any of the apps, like our you know our underneath our logo on any of the different app stores or connected TVs, it says you know we are an LGBTQ TV network. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest thing, the takeaway that I want new audience and consumers to see is that. Um, that it's diverse, you know, our content is diverse. And I think that also opens us up to an opportunity that maybe the network one day is not just LGBTQ and it's just about diversity of gender, race, age, orientation, and language. Um, You know, uh, that excites me. Uh, It excites me because we're seeing an evolution of our own community and we're seeing, you know, I know queer, had a negative connotation for certain generations for so long. Sure. But we're re-empowering that word. We're re-empowering that word, and you're seeing that very much with the younger generation, with Gen Z and, and, and millennials, um, because we want it to be about our culture. We want mm-hmm. to uplift our culture. Our culture is very rich and diverse in its origin, um, and, um, and it's time for us to really, I think, create structure around that so then the rest of the world um, can be more accepting of us. Yeah, and where that question comes from is, like this week uh, there was a special election in Houston to fill a legislative seat in in, uh, the Texas House and a lesbian won the seat and so it's like in coming up with a headline is the headline seventh lesbian elected to the Texas House. You know, it's like, <laughs> but, but but the other part right. of that is that she's a black lesbian. But she is the first uh, yeah. uh, black Big woman deal. who was out, who was elected. But then that was counterbalanced. Right after that, I opened up an email from my alumni association, and it was just uh, alumni uh, alum Harvey Milk will be would had he lived would be celebrating his 92nd birthday this weekend and without having to go through who he was and uh you know the even stating that he was gay it was just assumed that you'd know so yeah uh yeah you know it's like 
when do we stop having to label people in each thing that we're in? Um, I thought it was kind of cool this week. There was, a, there was an ad on TV, on just regular TV, um, from a, a credit um, credit agency or a, a credit score agency where they used uh, they them and never missed a beat and I I thought it was really beautiful we, we did a double take and rewound it on our, our TiVo to see it again but you know wow they never they may, never made a big production of it they just referred to this person as they them through the whole app that's becoming more and more normalized. Like, what really excites me, too, is when you watch Reverie and you see the advertisers, they're creating LGBTQ ads. So you see lesbian, gay, trans, non-binary people. They're creating 15 and 30 second spots with us in mind. And I'm, it, it, I, it gets me so exciting because excited because I'm like, watching my own network and I'm all like, oh my God, there's an ad to go to Miami. There's an ad to go to Puerto Rico. There's an ad for Alexis. There's an ad for McDonald's. And it's like these major brands, corporations, tourism agencies are targeting our community and they're thinking about it at the beginning of the creative process and creating advertisement like the one you're talking about Mm -hmm. for our community. Mm -hmm. And it's a smart thing to do because look, I'll give you one more statistic. I'm, I'm, I'm a book of statistics. Coming off the last a census, you know, our community spends $1.1 trillion in the United States in disposable income. $1.1 trillion. That is not a small number, you know. And they said on the 2020 census that only 7 to 8% of the entire population of the United States self-identifies, because, you know, there's a lot of people who don't identify, but self-identifies as LGBTQ. So if it's assumed that like seven to eight percent of our population spends one point one trillion dollars, that's a mo- that is a massive GDP, right? Like that is not a small GDP. Um, and so if you're a brand, and hopefully you are, and you're listening to this, it's smart for you to create content in your advertising strategy for our community. Yeah, right. absolutely smart. Right. Um, we are completely out of time, uh, Damien. Uh, if somebody would like to find Reverie, they can find where you're located or w- w- what services you're with at Reverie.com, right? No, Reverie.tv like television. Oh. R-E-V-R-Y dot TV like television. And you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the socials, Reverie TV, R-E-V-R-Y TV. Great. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, thanks so much. Come uh, back. This was so fun. We will totally come back. And you know what? I'll, I'll shoot you an email. I know Beto's uh, campaign manager, so hopefully we can get Beto on your, on, on your show. Great. We'd love that. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Next All right, guys. And next week on our show, we have uh, Janie Bush, who will be talking about abortion. She, <laughs> she has a long history. Long history. Uh, new Roe, New Wade. Uh, knew everybody involved in the case and we'll be talking about the history of abortion in Texas. For all of us here at Lambda Weekly, have a good week.